I'll ask you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We've been studying this Gospel verse by verse and uh, section by section for several weeks now, and uh, it has been a great blessing. I, You know, I, I studied uh, so many epistles by the Apostle Paul, I felt that as I felt almost as though I knew Paul, uh, studying his writings. And then when we studied Peter, um, I felt like I sort of knew Peter. And now I'm, I'm really feeling sort of like I'm getting to know John as well as we go through this uh, epistle together, or this gospel together. We've been looking at this uh, section On the testimony of John the Baptist now for several weeks. And the one thing that we find in John is his abject humility. Follow with me as we read. Beginning at verse 35. The next day again John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. We've been following the life of really the testimony of John the Baptist in this gospel up until this point. And in verses 29 through 34, we looked, we looked very closely at the testimony of John the Baptist. And we see in him many things that are missing in us. John was the forerunner of the Messiah. He knew what his task in life was, his calling was. He knew why he was born. He knew why he lived. And he knew that, like all men, one day he would die. Although John did not realize that he would die in the manner in which he did, and we see, we'll see that later as we go through, through this gospel, there were doubts in John's mind that came about, no doubt by the, the enemy of God himself. Jesus alleviated those doubts. We come now to this particular portion 
And we're looking at uh, the testimony of the disciples. All the preaching, all the baptizing, all the testifying, and all the acknowledgement by John the Baptist was for one purpose. It was so that Christ might become prominent and John become obscure. No one wants... And no one enjoys being made to feel lesser than someone else. But John was perfectly happy to be lesser, even unneeded, if it meant that Jesus would ascend to the place of distinction that God had willed for him. There was a need for redemption, and the Messiah was the only one who could bring healing to the human soul. All of Israel's former sacrifices pointed to this one ultimate sacrifice, whom John revealed as the Lamb of God who took away, who takes away the sin of the world. takes it away so that sin would not dominate. Jesus did this throughout his entire earthly ministry and life. His life was lived as an imputation for our lives of his of his redeem of his redemption and and the debt that he paid in his death for our sin. This was not the only This was not only true of Israel, that Israel needed to be redeemed, but it was true of every single human being on earth. And yet, at that time, Israel was the one whom God had sent him to. In fact, uh, we see that throughout Scripture... That there will be a representation of every tribe, of every nation, of every people group on earth that will be in heaven because of the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. Revelation 5 verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And your blood, you, in your blood, you have ransomed for God from people from every tribe and language and people and nation. There's not one single people group that will be left out of God's effectual call in the gospel. That brings us to verse 35. And the portion that we just read. Now this is the third day in a succession of days since the Jews began to question John. Chuck Swindoll sort of summarizes it like this. On the first day, John the baptizer announced the imminent revelation of the Messiah. On the second day, John identified Jesus as the Messiah. And on the third day and fourth days, Jesus called his first five disciples which the gospel writer describes in quick, 
rapid-fire succession. What we have in these verses, beginning in verse 35, is the real test of John's attitude toward the mission that God had given him in life and how it affected the disciples and ultimately the Messiah. We can see the faithfulness of John's testimony in verses 29 through 34. And now we see the fruitfulness of it. It is one thing to speak highly of and even applaud those who are greater than we are. But it is another thing to have people who were loyal to you abandon you for those people. This is what happened to John. Yet John knew that his ministry would come to a close and Jesus' ministry would begin. This was the reason he was born. And so, it would appear that the crowds on this particular day, that the crowds for the most part are gone, at least they are gone for the moment. Later we see that John still was, we'll see that John was still baptizing at Anon. Uh, but today, there seems to be a, a lull in the crowds. <clears throat> and John is standing with two of his disciples, discussing, no doubt, spiritual things that pertain to what has taken place in the previous two days. We see later that this is the Apostle John. One of these disciples is the Apostle John, who never actually mentions himself by name in his writings. And the other was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now this part of the story actually centers more on Andrew than it does on John. Though John is present in all of these happenings, these figures were both disciples of John the Baptist. And I think that it behooves us to understand a bit more about this word disciple before we go any farther because it is used many times in this gospel as well as the other gospels and Acts and throughout the New Testament really. So we need to understand it at least in part. It is the Greek word mathetes. It has at the beginning of it the word math, which is where we get our word math or mathematics. has to do with with the arrangement of things. This verb, mathetes, it means a learner. To learn, to be a learner, to be a student, one who adheres to the teaching of another but it but it's more than just adhering to teaching it's 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 more of an adhering to not only the teaching but the 
but the actions of the teacher. To be a follower of, to, to walk along with. In that day, disciples would walk along with their teachers along the road. And the teacher would teach them as they walked. And then, whatever he taught them would be, would be illustrated in life lessons. This is what Jesus did throughout his whole ministry with his disciples. So they became, the word really became used more of spiritual leaders and their students than anything else. Although it could be applied to really anything. The word itself indicates having mental effort on the part of the student. The student becomes really a student. He is learning from someone about something. And he is putting in the effort that it takes to acquire that teaching and, and learning for himself. The word, this word is where we get our word mathematics, as I said, the learning of numbers and equations for practical use. The word originally had no spiritual connotation, but eventually took on the meaning of one who followed and learned from a spiritual leader or teacher. And if you say the word disciple today, that's exactly what people think. No one thinks of a di- someone as a disciple uh, of a mechanic or a cook. But the word was used that way originally and then later became spiritualized. We see it. We see this in, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. Verses 28 to 30, where Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Gain knowledge from me. Gain skills for the soul from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. The disciple not only learns from listening to Jesus, but he also learns by looking at him and imitating his character and life. Disciples are, in essence, little copies of the one they follow. I remember when I was in in Bible college and seminary, there was... Certain There were certain preachers that everyone liked more than others. And many times the, the preachers that were learning to become preachers would often imitate the style of a certain preacher. Habits that they used in the pulpit. For me, it's digging into my platform with my fingernails. I don't know why I do that. I've done it all these years. It's a wonder I even have any left. But there's little places there where I dig my fingernails in. I don't suggest that anybody follow that trait. Obviously, people are to become themselves with the likeness of Christ in them. This is the idea of becoming a disciple. In fact, uh, Acts chapter 11 says this. So Barnabas 
went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught great a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples, now get that, the disciples, the mathetes or mathetoi, were first called Christians. And the word Christian simply means little Christ. This is what the disciples were. They were imitators of Jesus to such a degree that they dubbed them with the name Christian. It wasn't wasn't a flattering name. It wasn't a nice name. It was meant to be derogatory. But nonetheless, we love it today, do we not? We do not shun to tell people, I'm a Christian. Now, you have to kind of define what that is in our day because everybody seems like can call themselves a Christian when they're really not. In our narrative, Jesus was not approaching John as he was in verse 29, but he was simply walking by and John pointed him out to the two disciples standing with him. The description John makes is the same description, word for word, that he uses in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. John is saying to these two disciples, Fix your eyes on Him. Gaze upon the Lamb of God. And that's said for two reasons. Number one was to indicate solidly in the minds of the disciples that Jesus was more important than John and that they should look to him. This is what any preacher, Bible teacher of worth anything does. They do not point to themselves. They do not make much of themselves, but they make much of Christ. And they teach people to look to Christ, not to them. Second, that in looking to Jesus, they should follow him and become his disciples exclusively. John is releasing John the Baptist is releasing John and Andrew to go and follow Jesus. Yesterday, Jesus was walking toward John. Today, he is walking away. Obviously, to the place where he was staying. It was a time for the sovereignly appointed disciples to follow their Messiah. Everything in God's plan has a time. Everything. There are no mistakes. It's never late and it's never early. It's always right on time. And Jesus didn't just happen to be walking by. It was sovereignly ordained that he walked by and that John would point him out to these two disciples. Now what I'd like to do through this week and next week is I'd like to center our thoughts on Andrew, who was with John. John is a silent figure here. Although we see him many times in the gospel that he wrote, yet he's never named. He's called the 
the disciple that Jesus loved. We see him at the cross. Jesus speaking to him to take care of his mother. And yet Jesus did not name him by name. And so in this narrative, Andrew is the one that we will center on. So there's there are a list of things that goes with this narrative in Andrew. And I want you to, I want to go through them and I want to touch on two of them this morning. And we'll pick this up next week for the others. Notice first, Andrew's encounter of Jesus. <clears throat> It was not by mistake that he was there with John the Baptist on this third day of the events. As I said, it was sovereignly ordained. At some point, Andrew must have been drawn to John's preaching and became a disciple of John. That seems obvious as he was standing there with John and he is named as one of John's disciples. And so Andrew had been learning from John. He had been following John. He had been there when the people were being baptized. He was there when the people were confessing their sins. And no doubt, no doubt he confessed his sins to John. He had listened to his preaching. He had followed the ministry of the forerunner. And as disciples, these two had become attuned to the things that John said. And they heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God. John's public declaration from the previous day is now a personal, has personal intention. He's not simply saying this to a crowd of people as he did in verse 29. He's saying this to the two disciples for particular purpose. Naturally, their attention was turned toward Jesus as he walked by. But it was more than just a noticing of him. It was a command from John to pay close attention to him. John would hear over the many, over the years that he walked with Jesus, John would hear as a part of the inner circle of the disciples, John would hear the voice of the Father say on several occasions, this is my beloved son. Listen to him or hear him or I'm well pleased with him. So John wanted to see him for who he was. John wanted the disciples to see him for who he was, and they want, he wanted them to follow him. It says, they followed Jesus, which would indicate that they were following him as his disciples, or at least as a desire to follow his disciples. However, they were probably following just to get acquainted with Jesus and become exposed to his teaching and ministry. The formal calling of the disciples at this point had not taken place. That took place on the 
on the shore of Galilee as they were fishing, cleaning their nets. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Where this, where the record of that formal calling is. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. So these two disciples that were disciples of John are now being called to be disciples formerly by Jesus. They were mending their nets and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and there with their father and followed him. This following and subsequent calling shows that Andrew had spiritual interests in his early life. It is impossible to be totally spiritual as long as we are in these bodies of flesh. I think you recognize that as well as I do. For we're in a constant battle with the flesh. It is relentless and it never gives up. One day it will give up in death and there will be no more battle with the flesh. Do you not long for that? I long for it. Uh, Craig and I were talking about this this morning that we're sort of caught we're in between what the proverbial rock and a hard place because everything in us and our mortality says we want to live. I mean, when it comes right down to it, we fight for life. We we don't want to give it up. And yet at the same time, there's this desire to As Paul said, I have a desire to depart and be with the Lord. And yet, in Paul's words, he says it's better for me. However, it's better for me to remain here for your sakes, he said. So we're here not just for the sake of ourselves. We're here for the sake of others. Even though we desire to be with the Lord, and we do. If we're left here, it's because it's good for us to be here for someone else. This is the conundrum of the of the Christian life. And so Andrew displays this spiritual this spiritual interest in his early life and and he's drawn to spiritual things especially probably in his early life. And I would say to any of you young people here, if you're interested in spiritual things, then then go for that. Because we live in a world that with such hype on the secular, leaving God out, changing the narrative so that God is not in it. And young people today amass around themselves Heroes and, and 
People they look up to who have absolutely nothing to do with anything spiritual. And it's easy to go that route. Easy. It's not necessarily wrong to be impressed with someone. It's not wrong to look up to someone who has good traits. But my friends, most of the most of the people that young people look up to today don't have good traits. They're saturated with the world and the things of the world. And we know where that all leads. It leads to death. In the end, it leads to death. Andrew was one who wanted to know about spiritual things. And so when he heard John preach... He was drawn to that. He was drawn to John. I can remember as a boy being drawn to hearing preachers preach. I had no idea what God would do. I used to, my mother fostered a lot of that. She would take the family Bible and give it to him. It's a huge, big thing. And set it on the back of a chair and I would stand and I would Pretend that I was preaching. With no earthly idea that I would ever do that. And yet, there was something in early life that drew me towards those things. If you are a young person and you're drawn towards those things, go towards them. Parents, foster this in your children. You don't know what they may grow up to be. To follow the worldly things is to follow the ways of death. Jeremiah 21. And say to this people, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. Choose life. Andrew chose the way of life. He was a rare individual. And he immediately saw and believed that John, what John said about Jesus. He immediately saw it. Because he, the Lord had conditioned him toward it. Of course, we know that this is all from the sovereign hand of God. John had done his work and now he would fade away and Jesus' work would increase. We actually don't see John's ministry again in this gospel until chapter 3. Where John testifies to the sovereignty of God in all that he had done. And that all all that he would do hereafter. Listen to it. In fact, flip over to chapter 3. Look at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples, of which were John and Andrew... Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with us He who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, 
Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. I want you to know that we are not in competition with any other church in Big Lake or Sherburn County or the United States for that matter. There is no competition. We are who we are. And people either like and want to be with us as we are or they don't. Not saying that to sound callous or cold. I'm just saying that we will not do things just to pacify the felt needs of people. And neither, neither did either of these. Look at what John says to them. John answered, verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. There you have it. You say, why does Bethany Bible Church have what it has? Because it's been given to us from heaven. That's why. Full stop. No other reason. You yourselves, he says, bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my joy, this joy of mine is now complete. But he must increase, but I must decrease there we see the humility of John again if God blesses another church besides ours I rejoice in that if another church preaches the gospel I rejoice in that Andrew obviously learned this kind of humility from John and now he would learn even greater things having followed Jesus. Notice verse 38 in our text. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour here we come to the second thing about Andrew that we see. Not only, not only is it, is Andrew's introduction or his encounter with Jesus, but we see his eagerness to know Jesus. He was eager to know Jesus. For generations, the Messiah the Messiah's coming had been pondered and predicted and longed for. Andrew had listened to the to John the Baptist and he had heard about the Christ. He had even heard John, seen John point to the Christ, speak about the Christ. And now he is face to face with the Messiah, the one whom he had yearned to see. What questions, what, what things must have flooded his mind to ask? So Jesus turns and looks at them as if 
studying them. This is what the word means. Jesus turned and gazed upon them. To He was studying them. Well, what was he studying? He was studying their hearts. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of people. He turns and he looks at them. Can you imagine someone looking at you and knowing exactly what's in your heart? Oh, I wouldn't want that. They would see some pretty ugly things. Jesus looked at them. Of course, Jesus knows the genuineness of the heart as well as its frailties. John chapter 16, verse 30. John 18, verse 4. These things do not negate the truth that no one seeks God except for the Spirit of God who draws them by the Father. Once God seeks out those individuals whom He effectually calls to salvation, then those individuals begin to seek Him. They cannot, they will not, and they do not seek Him prior to that. Romans chapter 3. Verse 11, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. This is taught clearly in Scripture. Notice the wording in Jesus' question. He asked, what do you seek? What do you seek? This is no different today. His question is, is not who or whom do you seek? It's what do you seek? This is the question for people today because people are seeking all kinds of things. Some people are seeking entertainment. They want to be entertained when they go to church. They want the bling and the lights and the and the smoke and the Whatever else they do. I don't know what all churches are doing today. They want to be entertained. And if if the entertainment stops, then they stop. Some people want to be simply be a part of the crowd. They want to be accepted as, as one of the number. We must examine our hearts to see why we are here and what what purpose. Is there in being here? Is it so that some felt need that I have is met? Or am I here to simply bow before the king of the universe and worship him the way he desires to be worshipped? What are you seeking? It's a great question. It's in the present tense. These are the first recorded words of Jesus in this gospel. And so he says, what do you seek, not who? Now, why would he ask it that way? Jesus must have wanted them to express the desires of their hearts. In their own words. This question was not for his benefit. For he knew what they were seeking. It was for theirs. And it's for ours. No doubt these two had repented of their sins prior to this. 
having been baptized by John, but here they are seeking the Messiah's favor and forgiveness, which is far more important than their confession to John. I've had people want to confess to me before. I tell them, look, don't confess to me. I can't help you. Confess to God. John challenges their mo- Jesus challenges their motives, but knew their hearts, and he knew that they were of those whom God had divinely called and were genuine seekers, genuine seekers. The commentator Linsky writes this, this first word spoken by Jesus in John's gospel is a master question. It bids them look searchingly at their inmost longings and desires. A hidden promise lies in the question, what are you seeking? Jesus has the highest treasure any man can seek, longs to direct our seeking toward that treasure in order that he may bestow it for our everlasting enrichment. I've had people come into the church here. First thing they ask, what kind of programs do you have for my kids? Uh, Well... (laughs) really don't have very many programs here at Bethany. Then I try to explain the philosophy of family, dad's leadership, mom's nurturing, that that's really a family matter. And some have walked away because that's what they were seeking. By answering his question with a question, we can see the intimidation effect that Jesus had on these two. They respond with rabbi, which is a a Jewish term. It means teacher. It's a term of respect. And because of the Gentile readers that John would have... John interprets that for them, and he says it means teacher. He's telling them, Rabbi, it means teacher. Where are you staying? Seems a strange thing to ask, doesn't it? Do we not ask the same thing of people we don't know? Well, where do you live? How many of them have ever said, come and see? That would sound almost like you're being smart with someone. Well, come and see. But Jesus didn't mean it that way at all. Two things come out of this. Number one, it indicates that they wanted to spend more time with Jesus in their initial contact with the Savior of the world. They wanted to hear from Him. They wanted to know Him. Number two, it indicates that they were willing to be His disciples having left John, which was John's desire. Jesus' response to them, come and you will see, was what they were hoping for. They were honest seekers motivated by the Holy Spirit to follow Jesus, and this is what they did. One commentator writes this, That Jesus is in fact bidding these men to do something more than discover where he was staying for the night. 
He is inviting them to come and gain from him an insight into the mind and purpose of God himself. Can you only imagine that their hearts, like the Emmaus disciples, must have burned within them as Jesus spoke to them about God's plan? Even though they didn't really understand it all. The honest seeker of God will always have been drawn by the Father. Always. No one seeks that is not drawn by the Father. John 6 verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Not only will the honest seeker be drawn by the Father, but the honest seeker will always, always be convicted of their sin by the Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 8, the Holy Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, when he comes, he will do this. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Spirit does. He convicts. Have you been convicted? Number three, the honest sinner will always find the Lord Jesus eager to receive him or her and give rest to their burdened souls. (laughs) That's the best part of this. Is that when you are burdened by sin, when you're discouraged by your own Human frailty. As a seeker whom God has given redemption, you can come and always find the Lord Jesus ready to receive you. Ready to forgive you. Ready to give you rest for your soul. I don't think that these two disciples, I don't think Andrew really cared where Jesus was staying. I think that whether it was a home in Bethany or a cloth-covered tent or booth, they really didn't care. What they desired was uninterrupted conversation and learning from Jesus. That's what they wanted. They wanted to hear from the Lamb of God who was their Messiah. Jesus never ultimately put off or sent away any sincere, motivated, God-motivated sinner or seeker. He saw them as lost sheep without a shepherd. Matthew chapter 9. To Zacchaeus, who was a little man who couldn't see over the crowd and put aside his dignity to climb up in a tree to watch Jesus pass by, he was rewarded With a personal invitation to allow him to come to his house. This particular point in John and Andrew's life was a milestone. And John records the detail that they stayed with Jesus that day. They went back to their business of fishing after this day. Until Jesus came to them on the shore of Galilee. And then they left it all to follow him. 
Now this is significant that he says that day because it was the already the tenth hour, which would have been four o'clock in the afternoon. The new day was getting ready to start, which would have been the evening, which was the Jewish day. God created it that way. What did Genesis say? And the evening and morning were the first day. So the Jewish calendar was set that way from 6 p.m. 24 hours later started a new day. So it meant that daylight was ebbing. It was going away. And they needed to find shelter for the night because there was very little travel in the ancient world at night. It was too dangerous. And so John does not record what they talked about or discussed during this day, but that we can only imagine the things that he disclosed to them. Great lessons for us to learn. The Lamb of God. Look. Follow Him. Listen to Him. Do what He says. Watch Him. Emulate His life. That was John's message. That's the disciples' message to us. I pray that we will heed it. In these days when to be a Christian can simply ostracize you among the crowd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. Thank you for the singing and the, and the prayers and the giving and the preaching. Father, uh, we pray that this would have all been done in the Spirit and that it would please you. That our worship would be honoring to you today. Our desire is singular. To lift up the Lord Jesus and hold him high. So that others can see him in our lives. And be drawn by the Father. To salvation by the grace and love of God. Pray that I pray that we would be constant seekers of you. That we would not allow the world with all of its hype and glitter and all of the all of its spine tingling things to divert us. I pray that we would remain faithful. Because that's what you'd require in your stewards, faithfulness. Give us the strength, our our Father, by your Spirit, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.